Joy comes from loving, obeying, and staying intimately connected with Christ. The gospel message is both credible and compelling when we live like the God we claim to represent. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to John, John 17, we're going to begin today in verse 13. Uh, 13 through 19, as you recall, the first 12 chapters of John, the gospel, really highlight Jesus' public ministry to the nation of Israel. And beginning in chapter 13, John records the private ministry of Jesus with his 12 disciples. So the, the gospel is really divided into two parts. The first half, the public ministry, largely with crowds, with the nation at large. The second part, the second chapters from 13 through the end, are Jesus' conversations and instruction with his 12 disciples. The chapters 13 through 16, where we've been for the last several months, is called Jesus' Farewell Discourse. It's his longest sermon, and he's preparing his disciples for his upcoming departure, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. And the disciples are terrified. They're very anxious. They've known him for three years. They've depended on him for everything, and now he says... Not only am I leaving you alone, I'm leaving you alone in a hostile world that is going to persecute you and try and even kill you. So chapters 13 through 16, Jesus is giving these disciples, 11, a great deal of encouragement. He promises them an eternal place in heaven. He promises that God the Holy Spirit will come and protect them and lead them into truth and guide them. And he promises that the Father will always keep them safe. So in John 17, this is what we call the great high priestly prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer of our Lord in Scripture. And it's also really the holy of holies in the New Testament. It's the only time we get to see an extended conversation between members of the Trinity. Uh, and if that were not disclosed to us, we would have obviously no idea of it because research cannot uncover the things of God unless he discloses it. So this is an audible prayer. It was heard and recorded and he asks his heavenly father to make all the promises that he gave the disciples in chapters 13 through 16 a reality. The, cha the, the chapter 17, this prayer can really be divided into three sections, three pieces. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus is primarily praying for himself and his father. And he's praying for the glory of himself and his father. In verses 6 through 19, where we are today... Jesus prays for the protection and purity of his 11 disciples. So the section we're in now is largely focused on the 11 disciples, but there's nothing in this section that doesn't apply to you and me as disciples of Christ. Obviously, it's 2,000 years later, but everything we talk about here applies to us as well. In the beginning of verse 20, he specifically prays for future disciples. That's the church. And of course, we would fall into that category, and he prays that they would be one. Uh, and experience his glory. So this entire prayer of our Lord is, Lord is motivated by love. Uh, if someone uh, loves you, they will pray for you, and I dare say there's probably no greater expression of love than prayer. If you want to know whether someone loves you, really loves you, they are praying for you regularly, persistently, consistently. That is one of the greatest things that we can do for each other, is not just in here, but throughout the week. Jesus, John records the heart of our Lord in John 13, 1. He says at his introductory statement, having loved his own who were in the world, the 11, he loved them to the end. It means to the utmost. We would say he loved them to the max. It is amazing that God loved us, you and I in this room, Christians around the world, before creation, he chose you. He not only chose you, he gave you as a gift to Jesus the Son in order to save you. Now that you're saved, he keeps you saved. He guides and protects, throws a hedge around us, fills us with the Spirit, 
And then he's prepared an eternal place for us to live in heaven with him forever. That's love from eternity past to eternity future and everything in between. Never, ever, ever doubt the love of God. Last week, we looked at verses 6 through 12, and in those verses, Jesus asked his Father to guard his disciples, to protect them, keep them spiritually secure and faithful. Today, we're going to notice that Jesus not only wants them secure and secure and safe, he wants them joyful. He wants them to experience joy. He wants you and I to be exuberantly joyful, regardless of your circumstances. And I'm hearing you say, well, that would be a miracle because my circumstances are um, not joyful. I get it. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 13. Jesus is talking with his father and he says, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they, his disciples, may have my joy made full in themselves. Here's our first principle. Joy comes from loving obeying, and staying intimately connected with Christ. Let me repeat that. Joy comes from loving, obeying, and staying intimately connected with Christ. Now, Jesus' departure is imminent, right? He is leaving earth. He's going back to heaven in about 40 days. He will be ascending. He will uh, be crucified tomorrow morning, Friday. It's now Thursday night. He will rise from the dead Sunday morning. He will be on earth for another 40 days, and then he will ascend and be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Now, the last four chapters, 13, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus made a massive number of promises to prepare his disciples for his departure, and one of the outcomes that he's been promising them is joy, abundant, joyful life. Remember in John 10, Jesus said, I came to earth in order that those who believe in me might have life and might have it abundantly, joyfully, lavishly, fully, plentifully. Abundant life is overflowing life. Those of you who've been to Israel know that the springs of En Gedi are down south by the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is desert. It is rock, no rain, almost nothing growing. All you see is rocks. It looks like a lunar landscape. And then you come to the springs of En Gedi, and there's this underground water, fresh, outpouring, continuous supply for thousands of years of underground water pouring out into this desert. That's a picture of abundant life. You must have it in the desert or you will die. Earlier, Jesus had said in John 15, quote, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made Full, full. The Greek word there is pleru, and it means to fill to the top, to fill to the very brim. No more room. You know, when you go to the gas station, they say, do not top off. I always top off. <laughs> Some of you, like me, like to fill your coffee cup so full you can't walk with it. You know, you need to bend down and slurp a little bit. It means that the disciples' joy is filled up, filled to the brim, and it's a continuous present, which means it will continue to be filled to the brim in the future. By the way, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness comes from the word happenstance. Happenstance means a circumstance based on chance. So happiness comes and goes. In case you wondered, happiness comes and goes based on your circumstances. And um, joy is not based on circumstances. Joy is based on the eternal, never-changing reality that the God of the universe loves you unconditionally and sent his son to pay your sin debt so that you can live forever with him in heaven. That never changes. And that is the foundation your joy is built on, is the eternal love of God, not our changing circumstances. And the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our minds to understand this. This should breed gratitude. One of the things I think that would be very helpful is make it a habit that the first thing you do is to thank God for your salvation. That's the greatest gift because if you are not saved, you ain't going to go to heaven. And it doesn't matter how good it's down here, it ain't going to last very long, as they say, right? So, this joy that he promises is a, not only a gift of God, 
It's a desire that He puts in us. We were designed to crave joy. We were designed to seek joy. Where we go wrong is looking for love in all the wrong places, right? As you know, the old song goes. Satan tempts us to sin by promising us pleasure. And he doesn't promise the pleasures of the soul. He promises the pleasures of the senses. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Our world is filled with people who are frantically chasing after the things that they think will bring them joy and satisfaction. And if they only get that next thing, then their soul will be satisfied, they will be fulfilled, and they will have never-ending joy. And they tell themselves, and sometimes we've told ourselves this too, if I could just have a successful career, if I could just marry someone who always thought I was the best thing since fresh bread, who adored me because I'm worthy of adoration, if only I had healthy, smart, and compliant children, ha, 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 if only I was well-paid, well-respected, if I only had the right house in the right neighborhood, if I only had physical health, if my vehicles would stop breaking down, if my health would break down, if I could only get into the right doctor who would fix me and make me, you know, etc., etc. You know the drill. Suppose you actually got everything you've asked God for. And your dreams really did come true. Tomorrow morning, you are not going to wake up happily ever after. Because what you now have won't bring you the joy that you hoped it would. The problem is, when we pursue joy in anything other than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we are drinking the salt water of this world. And when you drink the salt water of this world, do you know what happens? You get thirstier you don't become more joyful, more contented. Whatever you value and pursue more than God is an idol. And idols ultimately don't bring you joy, they steal your joy. Anytime you pursue something other than the Lord as the, as the heart, as the soul satisfaction, it will steal joy, it won't take it. It won't bring it to you. How do I know this? Monitor your prayers. What do we ask God for? Generally, we ask God for physical health, or at least a really good surgeon, right? Specifically with really good pain medication, which is really nice. We ask God for happy relationships. Lord, heal these broken relationships. We ask God for financial security. By the way, none of those are bad things. They're not. They're not bad things. The problem is, it's easy to treat God as means to an end. What I really want is financial security, happy relationships, and uh, you know, physical health, etc. And God is the Santa Claus. He's the genie who's going to help me get what I think I want. The truth is, what you really want is God himself. What you really, what your soul craves is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is ever-growing and ever-deepening. He is our ultimate treasure and pleasure. Psalm 1611 says, You, God, the Holy Spirit, will make known to me the path of life. By the way, you wouldn't be saved unless the Holy Spirit made known to you the path of life. In your presence is what? Fullness of joy in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. One of Satan's greatest lies is that God does not want you joyful. He really wants you to be sorrowful because he's a killjoy. That is a lie. It worked with Eve and it's been working ever since. Humans were created to find joy, to crave joy. That desire is a God-given desire, but it's created to, for us to find that in the Lord Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once wrote something to the effect that we humans are too easily satisfied with sex, power, drink, ambition, and so forth. He said, we are like children 
who are satisfied to play with mud pies in a back alley because we can't conceive of the idea of a holiday at the sea for a week. We just can't see it. So we think our mud pies are really, really cool stuff. Many people in this life, even Christians, play with the mud pies of this life and they think it's a banquet. It's a mud pie, right? Only when we see it in light of eternity. The truth of it is, the closer your relationship with Jesus, the more joy you experience. Jesus experienced joy by abiding in his Father's love, and he promised the same to us. John 15 says, If you what? Keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So abiding, remaining intimately connected to Jesus, is dependent on our obedience. Jesus wants us to experience joy. He wants us to experience an intimate connection with him. And we experience that connection when we do what he says. He says, I experience joy from my Father by obeying him, by finishing the work he gave me to do. Remember earlier he said, Lord, I've glorified you on earth because I finished the work you gave me to do. You should be able to say on your deathbed, I hope you can, Lord, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. God has a job description for you, and you need to be doing it. He didn't call you to something he didn't equip you to do. So it's imperative that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, and we need to ask the Lord, so what am I on the planet to do? What's the work you've given me to do? Believe me, he's more than interested to tell you. Jesus had joy even though he was facing the cross because he knew at the cross he was going to triumph over sin, Satan, death. The church was going to be born at Pentecost and he was going to glorify his father by raising up a bride. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, talking about you and I, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down to the right hand of the throne of God. By the way, despising means to treat lightly. He treated the shame of the cross lightly, and he endured it with joy because he saw the joy that was ahead of him in heaven. He was looking at the joy of fulfilling his father's mission. He was looking forward to returning to the glory of heaven and the inexpressible delight of face-to-face fellowship with the heavenly father. And Jesus says, I'm praying to the Father that you would taste that kind of joy. That kind of joy. And I'm praying that it would overflow within you, that the Holy Spirit would be a spring of living water. And he desires that his disciples would find that through loving obedience, remaining faithful to the word and experiencing God's supernatural joy. I'm convinced most of us take our cues from the culture. When I ask people, how you doing? They give me an organ recital. Well, the kidneys don't work, and the liver doesn't work, and the brain certainly doesn't work. I get all that. How are you doing from God's perspective? What does he say about you? We need to see ourselves from him. We sing this song, I am who you say I am. I'm not who I say I am. I am who you say I am. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here's the principle. God's mission for his people takes place in the hostile world system that is ruled by Satan. Let me repeat that. God's mission for his people takes place in the hostile world system that is ruled by Satan. So Jesus says, I revealed your word to them. He spent three years doing that, right? God's word in this case is the entire message from God to humanity as seen through the ministry of Jesus and recorded in the Bible. God's message to his people, to people, was to reveal himself through Christ so that people could experience eternal life and be saved. Jesus, as we talked about last week, is the supreme revelation of the Father. And Jesus disclosed and made the Father visible. Remember what he told Thomas? He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus was uniquely qualified to reveal God to us because he's the one and only God-man. He's completely God, 
and he's completely humanity, both at the same time, and therefore he's uniquely qualified to make God known to man since he possesses both natures, yet without sin. The disciples, Jesus said, they, Father, they understood my message, and they obeyed my message. Now, in contrast, he's going to talk about the world. The world rejected God, rejected God's message and God's messenger. As we talked about last week, the world system he's talking about here is the system of evil, evil people, demons, institutions, values, and activities, culture, that Satan organizes to oppose God and God's people on planet Earth. The world he's talking about here follows Satan, is blinded by Satan is loyal to Satan, and loves to sin just like their father Satan. The world is in darkness, and the world loves the darkness because they believe that it conceals their sin. God is light, and the world hates the light because why? The light reveals their sins. You have some people in your life that don't like to hang out with you. Because when you're around, you convict them. And they have to watch what falls out of their mouth because they got potty mouth when you're not around. And when you're around, they go, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, it came out of you because it was in you, right? You know. So people who belong to Satan, that's who he's talking about, the world, they share his nature and they share his values and they hate God and God's people. And Jesus said, I'm clearly not of this world. I came from heaven, right? I am not of this world. And he says, by the way, my followers aren't of this world either. Which is interesting because they were physically born here, right? All the disciples are human beings. They were born in the world and Jesus said, now that they followed me, they're no longer of this world. How does that work? Well, remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? He said, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be what? Born again, a new birth. Spiritual birth is receiving the spiritual life of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit who comes and lives within you at the moment of salvation. So you have God himself living within you. You have divine life, supernatural life, in the person of the Holy Spirit who came to live in you at the moment of salvation. So you have a new nature. You have a new life. God's nature, God's life. So Christians physically live in the world, but we don't belong to this world. This world does not contain our DNA. We used to, but we've been redeemed and we have a new nature. Our character, our origin, our identity, our citizenship is where? In heaven, not on earth. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country, you can enjoy the experience, but it's not your home. I have always really treasured having my passport. Because the passport is the means for me to get from there back home. Do you always feel a little safer at home? General rule of thumb. I love to travel, but I love to come home from travel too. So take it one notch up. If you're an ambassador representing the United States or representing a, a nation, your loyalty is to the country you represent. Your loyalty is not to the country you temporarily live in. You are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are living in foreign territory. Hostile foreign territory representing King Jesus who has a claim over everything he created. You will remain in that foreign country serving the kingdom of heaven and the Lord of all until he calls you home. Don't be derelict in your duty. Don't forget that this ain't home and your loyalty's not here. Your loyalty's there. Verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here's our principle. God the Holy Spirit protects us from Satan's attacks, and gives us the victory as we carry out his gospel mission. God the Holy Spirit protects us from Satan's attacks and gives us the victory as we carry out his gospel mission. You know, we humans are an interesting lot. 
Many times we think the solution to our problem is just remove the problem. And many times that's how we pray, right? God, just take this problem away. Especially if it's another person. You ever said, God, can you just take them home to heaven? It would be so nice if, if you could just disappear them, right? I mean, bring them to heaven, but, but they're, they're really causing me a, a lot of heartache right now. Or at least we say, God, take me away from the problem. So the solution is we want to be separated from the problem one way or the other. However, the world system we live in is the problem because they follow Satan and they do not love Jesus and they hate him and they're going to persecute him. And Jesus says, I do not ask the Father to take my people out of the world. Even though the world hates them, I'm calling them to stay there as ambassadors. We are called to remain in a hostile world because we have a divine mission to complete. It's interesting. Moses, Elijah, and Jonah all prayed at one time or another that God would take them out of the world. They all three of them said, just kill me. Literally. Just kill me. I mean, this is miserable. My circumstances are so bad, take me out of here. And the Lord refused to answer their requests, right? Why? Because their job descriptions were not yet done, not yet complete. Their mission was not finished. So God's plan to save the world cannot occur unless you and I, as his ambassadors, stay in the world, even though it persecutes us. We need to be in the world, but we don't need to be corrupted. We cannot become corrupted or controlled by it. Jesus told Pilate in... in uh, John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not centered here. It's centered in heaven. His mission is here, but his kingdom is in heaven. And Paul writes in Philippians 3.24, our citizenship is in heaven. So God's people are God's ambassadors, and they will spend their entire life on earth in enemy territory. So you can make disciples for King Jesus. And Jesus prays that his father will keep his disciples loyal and faithful while they're living in hostile territory. They're going to need protection from evil and specifically from the evil one from Satan. If you ever read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, you understand that Satan is a strategist. And he has a great many strategies to discourage people that belong to God and to keep people who are not yet belonging to God from belonging to God. And when a soul that Satan has assigned demons to to keep them away from God, turns to faith, trusts Jesus Christ, and is freed from hell, that really irritates him, just in case you wonder. And so he attacks that person, tries to destroy their faith, as well as the person who is ministering to them. See, Satan was condemned at the cross, but his sentence has not yet been carried out. And even though he's on God's leash... He does control the entire world system that's committed to destroy God's people and God's mission. 1 John 5.19 gives us a picture of this. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's the description of Satan. As you grow in the Lord, this place feels more and more foreign, doesn't it? It feels less and less like home. That's by design. You are growing more and more into your heavenly home, more and more holy, more and more like Jesus Christ. We are in a cosmic spiritual war, and we neither can disengage from the enemy, surrender to the enemy, or compromise with the enemy. And the reality is our spiritual pilgrimage on earth is in fact perilous. We are like herbivores, plant eaters living on the savanna in Africa who have to live in the same territory as carnivores who are trying to kill and eat us. Lions eat wildebeest. Wildebeest do not eat lions. The only solution for the wildebeest is what? Stay on the alert. Stay on the alert. 1 Peter 5.8 says what? Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, an ambushing lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
How can we do that? 1 John 4, 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world, Satan. So unlike herbivores, Christians can fight lions and win. But only because you have supernatural help. Because the Holy Spirit in you, the power of God, gives you that ability. And be sure of this. When you're resisting the lions, you will collect scar tissue. It says, greater is he that is in you. It promises the victory. It doesn't say there won't be battles. It doesn't say you will not suffer. It doesn't say you won't collect scar tissue in resisting sin. You will. This is a hostile place. We live under battlefield conditions, and our mission is to make disciples of all the nations. And our victory is guaranteed, but so is the battle, so is the suffering, so is the scar tissue, and so is the ultimate triumph, because God, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, is greater than Satan who lives in the world. Now, Christians have an interesting strategy, several strategies, to try and deal with this. If you look at the history of the church, some Christians have tried to get relief from the world's hatred by isolation. They, they just withdraw from the world. You know, the Essenes were a Jewish religious sect. They began about the second century BC. They flourished for about 300 years. They lived in the desert, and they avoided public life at all costs whenever possible. The church monastic movement uh, began in the fourth century after Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire because there were concerns that worldliness was creeping into church. And so people said, I need to get pure. I'm going to get away from this worldliness. I'm going to withdraw from culture. I'm going to go to a monastery or go to the desert. So they left the society altogether to try and pursue purity and avoid evil. The problem is what? Every person is a sinner. And when you go into a monastery, your sin goes with you. So now you just got a bunch of sinners inside four walls, inside a convent or a monastery in the desert. It doesn't make you pure. That's an inside job. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. So some Christians compromise with the truth of the gospel. They blend in with the world because they want to avoid hostility. In his book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes about a character named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And early in Christian's pilgrimage, he runs into this character after they fall into the slough of despond, and worldly wise men tries to persuade Christian to give up his pilgrimage to the celestial city. That's heaven. He says, the journey is too far. The journey is very dangerous, right? He says, give up your extreme position. Why are you so radical? You know, Learn to go along with the culture. You can live a very happy, contented, secular life in the city of destruction with your friends. You don't have to, you know, put yourself out and put up with all the sufferings and the struggle of this journey to the celestial kingdom. That's compromise. Now, in contrast to compromise or isolation, Jesus says, I want you to live in a sinful world, but I don't want you to be corrupted by the sin. And Jesus himself, what? He associated with tax gatherers, publicans, prostitutes. They were his good friends, but he remained pure. He didn't involve himself in sin. And sinners were drawn to him because he loved them, even though Annie was holy. So the only way we can live purer lives in a moral cesspool, two or three things. One, God the Holy Spirit lives inside us, and the Holy Spirit will prompt you to avoid things. There's areas in your life, in my life, that we're all tempted by. And the Holy Spirit says, don't go there. Don't do that channel. Don't do that internet. Don't read that book, etc., etc." So one of the first things to do when you're in a hole, stop digging. Right? If things are tempting you, go away from the temptation. It's called, you know, turn and run. Right? Number two... You can confess the sin that corrupts your life, and Jesus Christ promises in 1 John 1, 9 to cleanse us from all sin. So use the Christian's bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9, daily, hourly. That's why regular confession of sin is so crucial. We all get dirty every day, but God washes us clean every day we confess. So our job description is not to be corrupted by this world, by the decay of sin, but it's to retard the decay of sin by holy living. 
What did Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. The purpose of salt back in that day was not primarily for flavor. It was to retard decay. They didn't have refrigerators, didn't have freezers. So if you wanted to preserve fresh food, you salted it. And salt would retard the decay and keep it uh, from uh, decaying and being corrupted with rot. But for the salt to be effective, it had to actually touch the food. Had to come in contact with the food it was seeking to preserve. Someone wrote a book one time, said something to the effect that Christians are no good inside the salt shaker. If you're salt, you don't live your life inside the salt shaker surrounded by a bunch of other salt. You don't need good. You're not not preserving the culture when you're inside the salt shaker. So God sometimes takes your comfort zone and just shakes you right out of that salt shaker. Right? Some of you understand that your comfort zone is very important to you. God is not impressed with your comfort zone. He doesn't want you to be spiritual lazy, so he turns your life upside down and shakes it. And guess what? The salt that you're supposed to be comes in contact with a decaying world called immoral people and sinners and yada, yada, yada. And you're supposed to retard the decay in their life by holy, compassionate, godly living. We are commanded to be pure, and at the same time, we're commanded to be in contact with impure people. Impure people are messy. Heck, we're redeemed in this room and we're messy, right? If someone didn't get in contact with your mess, you wouldn't be here. Jesus said, go and do likewise. So how do we stay salty? How do we stay pure? Verse 17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Here's the principle. God's word purifies us from sin and sets us apart for God and his mission for us. God's word purifies us from sin and sets us apart for God and his mission for us. Now, the word sanctify and holy are very commonly connected. Holy means transcendent, other, distinct. We read in Isaiah 6 that he saw the Lord and the seraphim were calling out, holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4 documents that the four living creatures in heaven were singing, holy, 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 continuously. So God the creator is separate from his sinful creation. The word sanctify means two things. It means, number one, to be separated from sin. It means to be in a state of spiritual purity. Now, none of you would drink a bottle of water that said 99% pure, 1% arsenic. It takes less than one-eighth of a teaspoon to kill someone your size stone dead, so you probably wouldn't drink anything that was 99% pure. You want 100% pure, right? Sanctify not only means separated from sin, it means set apart for God, God's purposes. I have a coffee maker. You know I like coffee, and I use it every morning to make coffee. That coffee maker is set apart, dedicated, sanctified exclusively to make coffee. I don't squeeze orange juice in it. I don't make lemonade in it. I don't uh, make milkshakes in it. It is set apart only for coffee. Back in the day, we called a church building what? A sanctuary. Because it was a place that was sanctified. It was set apart. It was reserved for the worship of God. It was set apart exclusively to meet with God. Jeremiah, before he became a prophet, was called by God and set apart to be a prophet. And the same with Aaron the high priest. So in John's gospel, a sanctified person is separated from sin and set apart to God and his purposes. The Bible says that God's word is truth. God's son is truth, and God the Holy Spirit is the truth. And the truth is the means that God uses to separate us from sin and set us apart for God's mission. The living word of God is Jesus Christ, the written word of God you have in your lap. It's the Bible. And God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to do what? Lead us into the truth. So truth is the means God uses to separate us from sin and set us apart for God. Jesus said in John 15, he said, Now you are clean, he's talking to the disciples, how? Through the word, God's word that I have spoken to you. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to show us God's standard, which is perfection, and to show us that we're failing to live up to it so we can repent and be confessed and confess. See, the Bible is not only food for your soul, the Bible is detergent for your soul. 
Truth is a cleansing agent. Have you ever noticed that? You come in contact with truth, and it's abrasive, right? It scrubs you. It abrades your life trying to scrub the sin out. Sometimes I think that God's Word is like a washing machine, a front loader. When you open God's Word, you get into God's front loading washing machine. And what it does, it turns your life upside down, inside out. And the Spirit of truth, the Word of God plus the Holy Spirit, scrubs and rubs and completely moves your life hither and yon to wash away the stains. Have you ever thought about a washing machine from the perspective of the clothes? If clothes could talk to you in your washing machine, I'm sure they'd be screaming at you. This is painful. We don't like being made inside out and being tossed about, right? Most people don't like to get into God's washing machine. They don't want their life upset. They don't want to be scrubbed. They're comfortable with their dirt. But since we belong to Jesus and we represent him on earth, he is committed to our purity. And he will put you in the washing machine. And he won't hit stop until he's ready, right? D.L. Muti reportedly wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible, quote, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Because when you open God's word, the floodlight goes on through the word of God onto your life and he will show you sin that you repent from so you become more like him. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Here's the principle. The gospel message is both credible and compelling when we live like the God we claim to represent. The gospel message is both credible and compelling when we live like the God we claim to represent. So, the Father sent the Son into a hostile world for the purposes of redemption. And He sends us into the same world for the purposes of redemption. The Greek word for send, it's interesting, there's two times it says, you sent me, I send them. The Greek word for send in Latin is translated mission. Mission. A missive is something you send to somebody else. A missive is a message. A missionary is someone who is sent on a specific assignment to show the truth and tell people how to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires what? All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And God's mission is motivated by love, right? For God so loved the world. Jesus was sent by the Father to reveal the truth of God to the world and to tell people how their broken relationship can be repaired and restored. His mission was to reveal God by living a perfect life and then dying for the sins of the world so that we can have a relationship with the Holy God. So Jesus represented his Father while he was on earth, but he's not on earth. He's in heaven. So he delegated us the responsibility to represent him. We are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. We represent God to humanity, and God is a missionary God. He calls and commissions people to represent him on planet earth. And he wants to represent himself through people that look like him. He wants an accurate representation of him to this lost world. Interesting, Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you great. And I can see you going, man, everybody wants a God like that. He says, he's going to bless me and make me great. In the same sentence, he says, I'm going to bless you and make you great so that you will be a blessing to others. God's blessings always involve responsibility and a mission. And what was the next sentence? He said, leave your country. Leave your family. Leave your father's house. Leave your relatives. Leave your business connections. Leave your religion. Leave everything. Leave your security. And go to a land that I'm going to show you. And he didn't know where he was going. But he followed. Isaiah 6. Isaiah has a vision of God. Sees him on the throne. Here is holy, holy, holy. 
He confesses his sinfulness in the light of God's holiness. He's so aware of his sin. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. The whole God sends a seraphim, an angel with a coal, representing the purity of God, touches his lips. He says, I have cleansed your mouth. You are now purified from sin. And then God says, I need somebody to represent me. I need someone to represent me to the nation of Israel. Who will go and speak to the nation of Israel on my behalf? And Isaiah says what? Here am I, send me. God wants to hear you say that. And so God said, I want you to speak my word. I want you to represent me. I want you to be my ambassador to the land of Israel. And by the way, they won't listen to anything you say. How's that for a commission? You will be completely ineffective from a human standpoint, but I'm telling you to do it because you're going to represent me, and, and, and Isaiah did for 40 plus years, just like Abraham represented God for well over 100 years. So if we're going to represent holy God, then we have to be holy like he is. By the way, our gospel mission to the world about Jesus, the only way it's believable is if we actually live like Jesus, Right? If you live just like the world lives, your Jesus didn't make a difference in your life, so why should anybody be interested? They already know what doesn't work. It's not working for them. If it ain't working for you, why would they change? Right? So the world is not interested in a sermon. They actually want to see the difference that Jesus makes in your life, in your everyday, daily life. When you have problems... Do you complain and whine like they do, or do you have peace, regardless of the problems? When you're attacked, are you magnanimous or are you retaliatory? Do you plan revenge, or are you able to forgive? When people make poor choices, gosh, we don't know anybody like that. Are you patient with them, or you just want to whack them and say, you know, I don't need a relationship with a loser like you. Do you get sacrificially involved in the mess of people's lives? Has it ever scared you how much money and time you're putting into relationships for the sake of the gospel? And you said, I don't even know why I'm this committed. Because Jesus put his blood in you, that's why. It cost him everything. He didn't shed a pint of his blood like at the bank. He shed it all. People watch the video of our actions more than they listen to the audio of our words. If you live like Jesus, they will listen to your words about Jesus. They're going to watch the billboard of your life first. And then they're going to determine whether this Jesus you talk about actually makes you more attractive and more peaceful and more holy and more forgiving and more loving and more just, and they say, whatever they have, and I don't know what it is, but I'm interested because it's significantly better than the life I'm living at this point. Acts 10.38 gives a very brief summary about Jesus. And it says, Jesus, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And what did Jesus do with that? It says, quote, he went about doing good. Wow, that's pretty broad, right? Healed the sick, preached the gospel of the kingdom, fed the hungry. There's lots of good that you and I can be doing under that umbrella as the Holy Spirit leads you. So, like Jesus when he was on earth, our mission is to represent God accurately to a world that is lost. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And the only reason the redeemed are still here on earth is because God's mission for our lives is not yet complete. He commands each one of us in Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all the nations. You know, if God forbid that any of you or me come down with a terminal illness and we have regrets because we wasted a good chunk of this life on planet Earth on ourself. And most of the stuff we put our time and money into is chaff. 
that death is just going to go, and it doesn't mean anything. You want to live a life so that when the Lord says, it's time to come home, Paul says, you don't come to him with shame. You come to him with confidence because you've been forgiven and because you've lived a life by his power, under his authority, through your loving obedience and intimate fellowship with him, that pleases him. Let's review, and then I'll ask Danny to come and lead us in prayer and praise. Point one, joy comes from obeying, loving, and staying intimately connected with Jesus. That daily intimate connection is the crucial foundation for everything we're talking about with respect to mission. Number two, God's mission for his people takes place in a hostile world system that is ruled by Satan, and that's God's design. Not accident, it's his design. Quite frankly, most of us need a hostile world system to put a pitchfork on our backside from time to time. Otherwise, we would be lazier than we are now. And I'm preaching to me, number one here. I'm the head of that list, right? Number three, God the Holy Spirit protects us from Satan's attacks. It doesn't mean you won't get attacked. It doesn't mean you won't get scar tissue, but the Holy Spirit will protect you. And he will give you the victory as we carry out his gospel mission. If you get to heaven without scar tissue, they will conclude that you were never in a battle. If you've never been in a battle, what were you doing on planet Earth? Taking up space? Number four. God's word purifies us from sin and sets us apart for God and his mission because we have to be pure. We have to be separated from sin. We have to be set apart for God and his mission. And lastly, when we do that, the gospel message, the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ is both credible and compelling when we live like the God we claim to represent. The power of a holy life is phenomenal. Here's what's terrifying. Most of us have no idea how many people are watching us. If you did, it would scare you into prayer. There are people all over that watch how you respond. You don't know it, but they do. That's why living a life being filled with the Holy Spirit and submitted to Him every day and saying, Lord, fill me, accomplish your purposes through me, God will take those little moments when you don't know it and the Lord will use you to accomplish His purpose in somebody else's life. Okay, I guess we have enough to do for the next week. Next week, Lord Wynn will try and finish John 17 up. Now that you know, do... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.